Welcome to the Business of Nonprofits podcast, where we enable candid discussions of nonprofit business transformation. I'm your host, Stacey Lund. Let's get started. Brought to you by TGR Management Consulting. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to the Business of Nonprofits. We are talking today to support the Enlisted Project, an organization that focuses on financial self-sufficiency among junior active duty military and recently discharged veterans. And with me today is the CEO and co-founder, Tony Teravainen. Tony, I'm going to let you talk about your organization because you are extremely eloquent on this, but I want to point out for the people not in the San Diego area, this organization is an amazing organization. And frankly, San Diego, we have the second largest military payroll in the United States. So the work that Tony's team does is timely. It is important. And especially given today's economy, it's just critical. So Tony, tell us a little bit about STEP. Yeah, thank you, Stacey. I appreciate the time. STEP is Support the Enlisted Project. So it's a nonprofit that we created 10 years ago. We celebrated our 10-year anniversary in October. And we created it, six other board members and myself. We were doing some work with another nonprofit, providing a lot of support. And it was a lot of material support to families. One of the questions I had started to ask is kind of to what end are we handing out all this stuff? Is our design just to help people get by? Or are we really trying to do something uh, more long-term and permanent? When it came time to break away from there and start STEP, that's really what our focus was. So we were working with these families that were facing a a crisis of some sort, and usually it was a financial crisis, and we were going to help them through this. So we wanted to keep doing that. So how do we help a military family through a crisis, but really focus on making this their last crisis and increasing financial self-sufficiency, increasing financial strength were all the attributes of that, and it was really hard to figure out how to measure it. But through the years, we've come up with a mission that really encapsulates that. And we created some intellectual property. We created a financial behavioral intervention program that we applied to now 7,000 families here throughout Southern California. And now we've recently expanded to cover Washington State. And of those 7,000-ish families, a year after the program, 9 out of 10 children are still continuing to improve their financial situation. They have improving their financial wellness score, and they're also continuing to work towards the financial goals that they set. So we created steps specifically to help military families in financial crisis, but really beyond the crisis, how do we make it their last crisis? Super cool. So moving into COVID, your sort of business problem wasn't really COVID. It was staffing. Talk a little bit about that, and then we want to focus on how you surmounted that eventually. Like, what did you come up with? Yeah, I think going into COVID, I was a few people short, and then I lost more people during COVID. And I think at that point, I might have had a 14-person staff. And it was really hard to hire people. Nobody wanted to work. Everybody you know, had their own reasons. We hire a lot of military spouses, which normally there's a, kind of a more constant flow of them coming through the system as they transition to the area. But we weren't seeing a lot of military spouses looking for jobs. We weren't seeing a lot of nonprofit professionals looking for jobs. And we weren't seeing a lot of social workers out on the market. It was a lot of challenges that we had. And it was in a lot of different areas. Uh, One of the things we did in fundraising where we had the biggest challenge was we had to hire some contract fundraisers to help us through that. We had to hire some temporary staff and outsource some of my bookkeeping and a few other areas. 
So talk a little bit about particularly your front desk staff, because when we were in your office, I thought it was so interesting what that sort of sparked for you. You had these challenges and you were you were staffing with some temp labor. You had said you actually got to the point where you just decided not to hire until you could find the right candidate instead of just a body in the seat. What did you hit next as your sort of your aha moment for staff? Because you made a very interesting choice to just hold off. With a lot of the other positions that we had, there was a couple that we were trying to fill with folks other than, I'll say, the, the perfect fit. We would find people and we thought maybe an 80% solution. This isn't the best person for the job, but it's somebody that can get the job done and execute it. And man hours wise, it would seem to make sense that we could get the people in and they would do a good enough job. And really the few times that we tried to do that, it seemed to backfire on us. So we would bring people in that we thought could get it done, but wouldn't be a great fit. Or we thought that they would be able to adopt to our culture. Or we went through the process and knew that there were some areas that we thought we could try to shore up on these other folks. So we probably had to let go more people during that period. And more often than not, when we brought somebody in that wasn't a good fit, they ended up not able to align to either a culture and our values. And we had to kind of go our separate ways. Your culture is so critical to your team. And I know you knew that, but clearly this reinforced it. How did you pivot? Did you just decide as a team, look, this isn't working? Yeah, the culture at Step is very unique, you know, because it's it's very difficult to build a nonprofit from the ground up. And a lot of folk, you know, now we're 10 years old, want to look back and say how we did it and, and what's the secret sauce. And if I had to come up in one word, why we were successful, I would say that it's because of our culture. And, you know, most of the families come to us through personal referrals. Somebody comes in their moment of crisis. They've got an eviction letter. Their car's being repossessed. They don't have enough food to feed their family. Electricity got turned off. And this military family is going to someone they trust and know saying, I'm sleeping in my car. We don't have electricity. I can't feed my kids tonight. So these are very intimate conversations with somebody they trust. And what that person is going to say to them is, thanks for coming to me. I'm sorry about your trouble. I'm not the best fit for you, but I know who is. And they're going to bring them. They're going to send them. They're going to help us connect with STEP. So that's a tremendous amount of responsibility that we have to protect that partnership and those referrals, right? And then also do our best to take care of those families. Other nonprofits, the county, the city, schools, colleges, churches, most fragile and vulnerable clients to us, unless they trust 100% that we are going to take care of them holistically. And taking care of these families, I think they also extend that to making them emotionally feel safe and, and help build them up. So when somebody comes to the step office, their first contact through their last contact has to be something done in a way that builds them up emotionally. And our culture is what greets them at the front door when they first call us or when they first have an interaction with us. And it took me a while to figure that out, that it was our reputation and our culture is really what we have to sell and what we have to kind of continue to push out there. And if I have any brand liabilities, if I have a, an outreach person that's not fully drinking the Kool-Aid, that is not really on board with Steps culture, then they're going to go out and they're going to presenting something that's, I'll say, half-hearted, right? It's not fully transmitting the passion that we have to serve our military families. And that's one of the reasons I like to have 
a lot of military spouses in the front office because they understand the situations that the other military families have when they come in that front door. This was kind of displayed to me very early when my mother would come in. My mom is now a retired English professor. And when we started STEP, I didn't have any experience in speech writing. I didn't have any experience in creating annual reports or these impact sheets for donors. And I would use her as a resource. And she enjoyed it. And it gave us a chance to reconnect. I mean, obviously, as I'm learning to speech write, I find out that, uh, what is it, like 85 or 65% of your speech is supposed to be personal stories. And I was like, well, that's stupid because that's personal, i.e. not for you to share. But I had to kind of get over that. And then I'm trying to write these speeches with my mother, and which, you know, at this point, she's a retired English professor, but and able to help us with that higher end, you know, English and grammar and structure and messaging and all that. So when she would come in our office, you know, my staff, they would see her and it would be kind of the boss's mom being a small startup entrepreneurial endeavor. I was involved with everything. So everybody know who Tony was and, and how I was kind of the guy behind the curtain making it all happen. So they had a great amount of awe for my mother. And then at the same time, it's Dr. Gordon. So they have to they kind of manage themselves properly in the, in the front of a doctor. But ultimately, they also know that she was a young military spouse. And for 20 years, she raised her family. Her and me, my brother and my sister and my dad traveled the world in the course of his military career. So the amount of respect that they treated her with was, I mean, was palpable. You could see it. And I really kind of turned that back around on them. And I said, I don't care what kind of circus walks through that front door, right? I don't care what that voicemail message sound like, or if there's all caps in the email or the text, every military spouse that walks through that door, you're going to treat them like they're my mother. And we have to treat them all that way. We have to treat them with the love, the care, the understanding, because they are all in just a very shaky place. And this is the place my mom went to to get help. And you recognize that when she was here. So you should recognize that and all the rest. And that really sets the tone. I have always had lunch. Our employees, 45 days after their employment starts, I'll take them out to lunch. So it's halfway to their 90-day performance evaluation, their probationary period. And there's three things I want to share with them. And number one is why our culture is like that. And I share that story with them. And I help really get into their head that we are here to serve military families. It's not like we have a job and we're looking for something to do. We are here to serve the military families. It's not our job to hang our shingle out and say, we got the best program in the world. So too bad for you if you can't find us or use us, right? It's the exact opposite of that. It's we're here to help you and we have a program to do it and shame on us if we can't do it. And that's what they adopt. You know, the other two things they want to do is they need to meet me because I was all over the place. And if they just see a person run in and ramble through a bunch of papers and run back out the front door. They don't ever get a chance to meet me. And then the third piece was really kind of to let them know that in 45 more days, the agency is going to let you know what they think of the fit. And this halfway point, the 45-day point, is really their chance to tell me how they see their fit with me and if they're receiving everything they need to be successful. And I think that's helped in also creating the structure, that part of the conversation as well. Having them understand inherently to me what the purpose of the agency is. It is to make our program work for other people's in their lives. That's why we're here. And every time we got somebody in that wasn't 
kind of all the way in that we sensed, we would have these brand liability issues where stuff would happen. And I would eventually hear about it. I think it's interesting. The better your, it's not necessarily reputation. It's maybe the relationship you have with the community. The stronger it is, the more comfortable people are to come to you to tell you bad news or news they perceive that you might not want to hear. And when they, this guy is pretty open and he really cares. And I think he'd want to know this bad thing that I want to tell him. I'm glad that our relationships are at that point where people feel comfortable doing it because my response to them is going to be something I learned from, uh, from Ken Blanchard and you thank them, you know, and you say your feedback is the best gift that you can give me. And that really obviously takes that relationship to the next level too, but it gives them green light to continue to give me feedback, even if it's, you know, something that's potentially negative because they understand why we're in business, my why. And if they see people stepping out of line, then they can come to me. And it's not even outsiders. We've had, you know, trouble in the leadership team in the past. And I've had one of my lower level staff employees come in my office and tell me how they didn't feel that our leadership team is living up to our core values. And they said, number one, because of this, this, and this, I don't think you're meeting it. And number three, these things happened, and this is not in line with number three. And core value number five, these people are doing this stuff, and it's against core value number five, and you need to fix it. And I was like, thank you. you know, thanks for bringing it up. When a, when a lower level employee can come in and talk about the leadership team and say how the leadership team is not living up to the values that I hold everybody to, they thought I would want to know that. So it was really good. So I think building that culture is really critical. And an 80% solution just doesn't work. Every time I've tried to make it work for whatever situation, sometimes it's decent enough for the short term, but it's it's stuff that really should never be started. And it would often be best just to to forego starting a relationship like that. It's kind of like uh, a glad to play you Tuesday for, for a hamburger today. It's like, it's just not worth it. Don't eat the burger. Don't take it. So you ended up delaying some of your hires, sort of making do, and that worked for you. Like you really thought it through and you made it work because your brand was that important. Is that where you landed? Yeah, the brand was that important. And we would leave the positions open and we continue to post and we'd have to do different things. And sometimes we had to, reevaluate the position. Sometimes we had to add more money to it or upgrade the title or combine it with something. We'd have to do something if we weren't getting anybody biting. We had a position open for a month and didn't have any applications for one of them. And we kind of went back to the drawing board on that. It's like, all right, what are we really looking for here? How can we make this more appealing to the community? But I think staff-wise, you know, somebody's got to cover the work, the critical work. I think the team preferred to do the extra work while we work to find a better fit. I think in the end, they appreciated that more than getting somebody in that would ultimately create a toxic relationship or somebody else that they saw weren't pulling their weight or didn't align with the core values. And then they have to question why. And obviously my explanation was like, I tried, you know, we're rushing it. And they're like, well, just take your time, you know, find the right person. We're going to trust you as the leadership team to bring in the right people. Don't drag us down or don't create a bad environment by rushing it. Yeah, I was super impressed with the staff when I met them because you definitely get this commitment vibe in the facility. And for those of you listening, I know that it's hard to picture, but when you walk in, it really was like the staff jumped to greet you and to make you feel welcome and kind of introduce the brand. And it was so powerful, right? Because they didn't know who I was initially and they didn't they didn't realize I wasn't you know, a a client. And that was so pervasive that I think 
you know, having a staff member have the transparency and the ability to come to you and say, this isn't working out. I'd rather you take your time than have to redo work is so important. Yeah, Stacey, I take that a little bit further too and say they would probably guess that you weren't a client, but they also didn't know where you fell as far as your relationship. And a nonprofit is different than a for-profit business, mostly because your revenue stream is not associated with your client base. So if I'm selling widgets, my clients buy widgets and they tell their friends and more of their friends come back and I sell more widgets to them and their network, I would provide a service to them with the widget and then they would give me money in return. In a nonprofit, I'm providing services to my customers, to my clients, but has nothing to do with my revenue stream. That's a whole different department. And that department is trying to raise money based on the goodness that we're doing with those clients. So we might take some of the stories and some of the situations and the impacts and outcomes and we share that, but that's what we're selling on the fundraising side. And STEP had to create its own funding channels. We had no funding when we started. And we made conscious decisions to pursue government funding because it was too restrictive. We made conscious decisions not to uh, have any fee-for-service models or take any money from the military or our clients in any way. And we don't have any processes to give them loans. I mean, we've given out almost 2.2 something million dollars at this point. We give that away to the military families. So when I go to a military base and talk to the, you know, the new base commander that comes in and say, hey, we're taking care of the Marines on your base or the airmen or army or soldiers or sailors, and this is what we're about, immediately they're like, what's in it for you? And I'm like, nothing that you're providing. The only thing I get out of serving your people is the need to go find more money from other people. It has nothing to do with you. And it's a very transparent statement I can make. And that adds, again, to the relationship with the military leadership, which really adds in that because they know there's no secret money circle. So we had to create that similar relationship, like we have to create those military family clients with all the donors. So when you came in that door, they don't have to try to figure out who you are. They just have to treat you the way we are because the people that choose to donate to STEP to fund our program and you know, create our outcomes through us see that same culture. And it really becomes the thing that sells itself. So we don't have to do high pressure sales. We just have to get our program in front of more people. And it's done in a way that there's a certain percentage of folks that latch onto it and they say, this is fantastic. I want to be part of this and they'll choose to fund us. So that culture really seemed to work. And they understand that money comes from relationships, just like money goes out with relationships. So we're really in the relationship game. We have to be the one that makes it all right. We're kind of the middleman between a community that wants to help its military community. And we're in the middle, so we have to build relationships on both sides, which makes both groups happy to use us as the middleman. Yeah, and it, it was so present. It really was. And, you know, I give you guys a lot of credit, but that takes a lot of work. And I guess if you were going to give a piece of advice to another nonprofit leader on how to build that into the DNA, I know it's a long road, but like what would your 10-second soundbite be on that? Well, I mean, I think it would be a for a for-profit entity as well. I did my master's degree at USD, and it's a master's of science in executive leadership. So it's through the business school, and it, it's kind of, you know, how would you lead a bunch of MBAs? And it was taught in conjunction with Ken Blasters. And his perspective is really what it's all kind of based on, which is hire good people and get out of their way. And my version of that is I become, I'm the fix-it guy. I'm kind of like the janitor. It's like, Tony can take care of your problems. My slogan at work is, I'm here to facilitate your success to all my employees. And so my 10-second soundbite would be, 
be the leader that facilitates the success of the team. And during the day when we're all there together, I'm theirs. I'm at their disposal. I'm there to help them be productive. And then in my time when none of them need me, that's when I can get my work done in CEOville. Other than that, you know, spending the time engaging with them, understanding their issues and solving them. You know, it helps them solve future problems. It helps them understand the culture and how the decisions are made. It helps them live that out. And it helps them practice and make them feel like they're on safe ground as they start making decisions in these newer areas that you've helped them with. And, and they'll continue to take on more because they feel confident. And the next time they come to you with a question, it's going to be at that next level and then the next level and the next level. And I think that's how we've created that confident team that can sparkle and shine as they come out from around the corner as you walk in that front door. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so what's next for step? Tell the listeners, since you have them, tell them what's next for step, what's coming up in the next few months, you know, coming up in the spring. Well, we just wrapped up our holiday season. This past holiday season has been uh, one of our biggest. So I think around 15,000 lives touched through the holidays, through our Thanksgiving program and then our Adopt-A-Family program and our Toy Drive program. And then this spring is where we usually shift over to what we call our baby drive. And I don't know how we got going on this, but this was like a mixture of like cleaning out your closets and storks and Easter bunnies. Uh, we're going through the communities this spring where we're collecting stuff that young families would need. So new or slightly used baby clothes, toys, books, diapers, and we'll even call part of it a diaper drive. We'll have a separate piece for that. So we'll get all the things in house. Well, we can fill up our warehouse because military families use that year round. And then we'll, we'll have a big party. We'll have our upcoming spring carnival. We'll distribute a bunch of that stuff, and then we'll have a day of entertainment for the families as they come out to get it. And then as we go through the summer, we'll be setting up for our back to school, which is our Camus to College program. And this is kind of our back to school, but I don't want to just give out backpacks. What we try to do is we tie that to something of value for the families. And to me, education is a big part of back to school. So how do I help more families engage with education, whether it's the adults, whether it's the older children? Um, or the young children. So we have we do a big education fair along with the uh, the backpack distributions, and we help other people start to build relationships with either colleges, universities, trade schools, uh, elementary school resources, and that type of thing. So, yeah, having the community come out and support our uh, baby drive, and also our back to school uh, would be phenomenal this year. Awesome, awesome, Tony. Thanks so much for joining us. For our listeners, I really hope you enjoyed hearing about Step. The mission is phenomenal. The staff is even more so. They are absolutely a tremendous organization and their culture is one of service for sure. So if you liked listening, like to talk to Tony, I'm sure he'd be available. You can check them out at teamstepusa.org. Again, phenomenal mission, great website. So lots of really good information available there. And then if you liked this episode, and maybe you want to be a guest or you want to follow us, go ahead and do so. You can also email us at podcast at tgrmanagementconsulting.com. Tony, any last words? No, I appreciate your time. And, you know, it's been a labor of love building a nonprofit. And I would just like to reinforce if anybody wants to reach out because they got good ideas or help or a connection, you know, advocacy is the best thing that anybody can give us, helping us connect with other folks that are like-minded. So appreciate any support from anybody that wants to. And I thank you again for your time. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.
My name is Tiffany Rosick, CEO of TGR Management Consulting. We help you do good work better.